This series comes with a content note. Some of what you'll hear is distressing. Please check the show notes for phone numbers you can contact to receive confidential support. In this series, abuse perpetrated by an intimate partner is described as family violence, domestic abuse or domestic violence. We acknowledge that production took place on what always has been and always will be Aboriginal land. It's a way of keeping you in your place, that you know that you're worthless, that you can't do anything right, you're not a good person. My name's Tharan Chavla, and my sister Nikki was killed by her partner in 2015. I'm a writer, broadcaster and anti-violence advocate. And I'm also the host of There's No Place Like Home. Men will criticise and blame their partners for not being a good lover, a good partner, a good person. In this episode, we're unpacking the role that criticising and blame-shifting play in domestic violence. You just heard from Brian Sullivan. He's the founder of Sakura DV, which provides domestic violence intervention, education and training and works with abusive men. Because of his line of work, Brian will refer to abuse perpetrated by men against women. And while that's the most common dynamic, we know that anyone can experience or perpetrate abuse. Brian says that relentless blame and criticism of another person's appearance, their parenting, cleaning or work will break down their confidence and identity. He will actually direct his focus at her sense of self and he will drag her sense of self-worth down. At the beginning of a relationship, this can start with ever so small and occasional slights, the kind of thing that's easy to mask and therefore hard to call out. It would start with things like, you can't load the dishwasher correctly, or you can't turn on the washing machine properly. Thomas, who you've already met, was subject to a barrage of criticism from his then-partner, Jim, that began with the relationship itself. And again, those aren't their real names. It came down to every facet of my life. I can't do a good job, or you can't get the train in time, or and it's quite subtle and it's quite innocuous in how they go about blaming you. And it's a way of keeping you in your place, that you're worthless, that you can't do anything right, you're not a good person. Stacy experienced something similar at the hands of her abusive partner, Oliver. Those aren't their real names. Oliver targeted his cruelty towards Stacey's weight, her interests and her intelligence. He was trying to tear down my sense of self. You know, just the belittling of my intelligence and the pop culture that I used to consume. In the beginning, those criticisms were sprinkled in amongst grand romantic declarations about Stacey and Oliver's unparalleled connection. The criticisms were framed as a way of showing care and even love. Often people find the things that they know people are a bit self-critical about already. For women, victim survivors, often the way you look, the way you dress, the way you present to the world. Jade Blackley is CEO of WIRE, the Women's Information Referral Exchange in Victoria. Jade says that women are socially conditioned to believe their appearance is the source of their value and their power. And because they're held to a different social standard than most men, criticism of a woman's appearance can be particularly impactful. Most women 
in whatever kind of relationships they're in, feel a lot of societal pressure about. And so you're more likely to hear and listen to the criticism about. That's often one that people will use. You know, why are you dressing like that? Or your hair looks much better when it's long? Or I want you to dress this way. And again, that being able to then say, that, oh, that's just because I'm trying to help you. The way that Oliver criticised Stacey changed after they had children. My children and my mothering ability were a big one for him. He would criticise my lack of milk production because I was starving our child. I didn't play with the kids enough. I didn't read them enough bedtime stories. I didn't feed them enough nutritious food. Jade Blackley says that this isn't uncommon. Again, women in society are taught that it's their responsibility to be perfect parents and perfect mothers and to make sure that everything's perfect for their children all the time. So that's a great one to criticise, isn't it? Because we're already starting from a point of a bit of self-doubt or a bit of self-criticism. And so if I then start to criticise the way you parent or what you feed the children or how you dress them or what you let them do or you don't let them do, because we're already questioning that in ourselves. Both stereotypically and statistically, women are more likely to take on a caretaker role in heterosexual partnerships. And this is a reality that Brian Sullivan says can further facilitate criticising and blame shifting. When we assume a role of a caretaker in a relationship and we feel responsible for healing that other person's pain, we're really taking on an impossible task because we take away accountability from that other person. And I'm accountable for myself. The only one I can control in a relationship is myself. But criticism and blaming behaviours aren't unique to male perpetrators, nor are they only seen in heterosexual relationships. In fact, this was Thomas's lived experience when he was in an abusive relationship with Jim. It's been like five, six years since I left this person, but it keeps going. I will get messages saying that my son's skin is very dry when he's in the care of this other person, that I'm not putting moisturiser on him, or all these things which I instigated. It just constantly happens. For Thomas, there was an added barrier, his sexuality. Moo Balch, a frontline worker and the chair of Our Watch, says that unhealthy and unfair gender norms can mean that members of the LGBTQIA plus community like Thomas are disbelieved or dismissed. People go, oh, yeah, that's okay. That's just two men physically fighting in a relationship because that's what men do. Or it's okay for him to shout and yell at her when he's frustrated because that's the way that men process anger, frustration, sadness, depression, whatever it is. You put the gendered lens over it and you go, actually, a lot of this is because women are not supposed to act like that. Women are not supposed to be angry. Women are not supposed to express rage. Women are not supposed to yell at their kids or yell at their partner or physically fight back. All of those sorts of kind of social myths around what it is to be a man or a woman, we need to deconstruct a bit and we need to think about how that manifests when there are unhealthy things going on in that relationship. When addressing abusers, Brian says we shouldn't look at the criticism and blaming as a relationship problem. It's a problem that the perpetrator is causing. I think it's a warning sign, though, if a woman in a relationship very early on has to be the caretaker and has to make sure this man's moods are calm and balanced and make sure this man's pain is assuaged and comforted at all times by her. That brings us to Eloise. Eloise was young, vulnerable and looking for love when she met her ex-partner, who we'll call Josh. 
we've changed both their names. At first, Josh made Eloise feel like she was the most important person in the world. But then, his language began to change. Looking back on it now, I think the first things that started to shift was my sense of feeling special and the decisions he was making around me feeling special became me feeling like a burden or like I wasn't good enough. Things that Josh had once done to show Eloise how much he cared were suddenly things that she was forcing him to do. The, oh, I missed a lecture to be here with you and that's how much I care about you became, you expect me to miss lectures. I'm missing out on my life because of you. You are the reason I'm not getting to do these things that I want to do. You're so lucky I will miss this thing for you. You're so lucky that I like you enough that I will do this. The attention devolved into blame and Josh began to treat Eloise like she was a liability. Someone who got in the way of him living his life, someone who stopped him from doing the things that he cared about. Everything started becoming framed as I was a problem and I needed to solve it for him and that I should feel grateful at every moment for this relationship and to be in this relationship. When Eloise met Josh, she confided in him about her difficult home life. She told Josh all about her sibling who was seriously ill and her parents who were spending most of their time taking care of them. When this information was first shared, Josh had been understanding, but as their relationship progressed, Josh became cruel and dismissive. I remember my sibling was going into hospital unexpectedly and I called him and I said, hey, this is what's going on. Can we please meet? I don't want to be alone in the house right now. This is really upsetting. And I remember him saying, well, I'm actually at the pub with my mates at the moment. You knew that. So how dare you call me? to ask for my support right now. When Eloise pushed back, Josh said that she was being needy and attempting to take him away from his friends. He said, okay, if that's the way you want to behave, then you don't deserve to see me at all. And so it was this sort of instant punishment, really, for trying to assert myself and trying to say, no, I do need this support. Josh ignored Eloise for three days. I spent that time sitting there thinking, I'm the problem, I'm at fault. And so when I saw him, he expected an apology and I apologised. I thought that was what I was meant to do and I thought that I was in the wrong. When I apologised, he was, I'll forgive you this time, but you need to understand that you are so lucky that I'm with you. Rules and so-called punishments can be a hallmark of abusive relationships and they're definitely a warning sign that we need to be aware of. Deliberately withholding words of love and affection from a partner can be used as a tool for control. Josh never said I love you to Eloise. Instead, he told her that he just wasn't sure if she was good enough. It was always, maybe if you do this, maybe if you're better, I could love you or I will love you. It was always this promise that I was on the brink of and simultaneously it was always I would love you if you didn't do this. It was always a punishment or a reason why I wasn't enough. 
and there were often times where it would be this is why I can't love you this is why you're unlovable and so it felt like I have to keep trying and I have to keep doing better and by better in his books is to not fight back and to not say that he's not caring enough for me or doing enough for me it is to accept what's going on and to treat him well and be easygoing and to do what he wants when he wants. Brian Sullivan tells us that blame shifting stems from an abuser's sense of entitlement. Nothing is ever the abuser's fault. They can behave however they wish and then justify appalling acts or words by maintaining that their partner provoked them. Their narratives will always be about denial, minimising, blaming, excusing, justifying their violence. A couple of years into their relationship, Thomas learned that Jim was gambling and the couple were already living together. But when Thomas would bring up questions about their finances, which was in fact financial abuse being perpetrated against him, Jim would deflect and transfer the blame. Sometimes he would frame apology, like, you know, I am sorry about the situation, but you're being too emotional about this. And it would always go back to me. The glimmer of him being sorry was momentary. And it was sort of my issue going forward. Instead of having an open and honest conversation with Jim, Thomas had no choice but to tiptoe around the fact that he paid for everything. And later, around Jim's gambling addiction. I nearly always saw him as... A broken child, as in how I would go about it. I would, I would be sympathetic, and I would say, "Look, well, I'm terribly sorry to bring this up, and I know it's not an easy conversation, but we're in debt up to our balls." In her book, *The Blame Changer*, psychologist Carmel O'Brien describes a person's refusal to take responsibility for their own behaviour as a key characteristic of abuse, and this can look like someone not owning up to their mistakes by giving long explanations or making excuses by never apologising or pseudo-apologising. You know, for example, saying things like, sorry, you're upset, while not actually apologising for the action that caused the upset. Abuse can also look like blaming a partner for whatever goes wrong, even when it has nothing to do with them, or blaming other people entirely, when in fact it's the abuser who's in the wrong. When a person starts to blame everyone else, they take away their own power to change. I'll always say to men, when I've ever tried to blame someone in my life, it's when I'm trying to to shift responsibility or shift accountability and not look at myself and my own role in this situation. And somewhere deep down, if I'm blaming someone else, I kind of know I'm at fault, but I'm not willing to admit it to myself. If you're in a relationship and you're concerned that something serious is going on, Consider how your partner responds when you ask them to be accountable for their actions. Do they minimise or excuse what they've done? And do they come up with excuses that just don't make sense? Are they unable to change because they're too busy at work, too depressed, too damaged by their parents? Do they say they can only change if you promise to do the same? Psychologist Carmel O'Brien says that these are warning signs for behaviour that's unlikely to change. And it's exactly what happened to Stacey. In fact, once Stacey left her abusive partner, the abuse escalated. Really ramped up during our separation and he would tell me how selfish I was depriving the kids of their father, that my claims of abuse were trumped up and that it was parental alienation 
and that I was an evil and disgusting mother who the kids would hate when he told them what I'd done. Parental alienation is defined as one parent deliberately preventing the other from having a relationship with their children. It's also a term that's frequently weaponized by perpetrators, like Stacey's ex. Men who argue that allegations of domestic abuse are actually parental alienation, stories that are made up by a vindictive woman to keep a loving father away from their kids for no other reason than spite. But in reality, that's far from the truth. A US study found that 28% of mothers who alleged that a father was abusive actually lost custody of her children to him. And when a father who'd allegedly been abusive to his family counter-accused the mother who'd made that claim of parental alienation, the rate at which he got custody of the children actually went up to 50%. He knew he could hurt me by using our kids and that became a central theme in his abuse. So when he wasn't telling me directly what a horrible mother I was, he'd be indoctrinating the children. He blamed me for breaking up the family, told them that I didn't love them as much as he did, and hid literal notes in the pockets of their clothing saying that I was a liar. Introducing a third party into the conflict is a tactic called triangulation. And according to Healthline, this can involve intentionally denigrating someone to create a wedge in their relationship with others. Triangulation is a form of manipulation. It's designed to tip the scales in the perpetrator's favour and reinforce their control. And it can involve friends, family, or in Stacey's case, children. The kids asked me why I was spying on their father. I couldn't believe he was accusing me of doing what he was. Particularly when I'm notoriously rubbish with technology, it was so preposterous, it was almost funny. But that sentiment quickly moved to distress when I was having to defend hacking allegations in court. Thomas experienced it too. It's even gone so far now that last week my kids came home and said, Dad, are you only looking after us because my ex-partner gives me money? So he's using the fact that he has to now pay child support because this is what he wanted to be a parent. What happened to Stacey and Thomas actually has a name and it's called DAVO, a tactic first defined by Jennifer Freyd. First, the perpetrator denies their behaviour. That's the D. Next, they'll attack their partner for confronting them about it. That's the A. Then they reverse the traditional roles of victim and offender. This makes up the RVO, reverse victim and offender. This means the perpetrator behaves in a wounded fashion, accusing the victim of having treated them unfairly. Both Stacey and Thomas's partners threatened suicide. He sent me a photo of his intended suicide method with the caption, you win, the kids lose. He'd written it before, but that night he was hospitalised for an overdose. I don't know if it was a genuine attempt to end his life or not, but it was very clear whom he intended to blame if he did. There were so many times when I would say, this doesn't seem right, and I would ask, should we maybe separate? You know, could I move out on my own? Which I would say that, and once I said that, he would say, I can't live without you. And then there were sort of the suggestions that he would kill himself or harm himself. In a recent study examining suicides in Australia, 6% were linked to domestic violence in heterosexual relationships. Threats of self-harm and suicide were found to be a tactic of coercive control and often took place during separation, divorce and custody battles. 
Believing that threats of self-harm would force women into changing their minds, men's suicide became the final act by which they could punish their partner. In many cases, these men also damaged their former partner's belongings and left spiteful messages by email, text or voicemail prior to their death. Most men will be in denial, blaming the courts, the police, blaming women's rights, feminism, blaming their partner, blaming drugs and alcohol, blaming his own history of trauma and his family of origin. People who use violence often make excuses for their behaviour, and that can include blaming drugs or alcohol. While alcohol or drug use may well be a problem for these perpetrators, that doesn't render them blameless. Many people who drink alcohol or use drugs aren't violent, and many people who are violent don't drink alcohol or use drugs. If a person already has an entrenched belief system that devalues women and justifies their abuse, then drugs and alcohol might compound it. But in those circumstances, the drugs and alcohol are aggravating factors, not the root cause. Domestic and family violence is critically a national crisis at present, but it doesn't have to be. That was Dr Kate Fitzgibbon, the director of the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre. What I'd really encourage everyone, no matter where in your lives this pops up or doesn't pop up. You may be someone who's completely been unaffected by the national crisis of domestic and family violence, but I bet there's a way in which you could make your world a little bit more respectful, that you could make the people in your life feel valued, respected. If you're concerned that a loved one is being subjected to domestic abuse and family violence, then Dr Fitzgibbon says that there's a simple and powerful thing that you can do for them. There is so much power in just saying, I believe you, and I'm sorry that happened to you. Just acknowledge the harm. Sit in the discomfort of not knowing how to immediately solve it, but validate that person's experience and acknowledge what's happened to them because you might be the first person that does so. Dr Fitzgibbon says that it takes a lot for a victim survivor to disclose abuse. So remember this and understand that your reaction can make a world of difference. The trusted friend or family member, work colleague, student, you should come with the assumption that you're the first person they've told. And just saying I believe you might be all they need on that day. If you don't do that, you might be the last person that a victim survivor ever discloses to. After affirming that you believe your loved one or colleague, she says that you need to check whether they feel safe and remember that your supportive presence is what matters most in this moment. You don't have to feel that suddenly everyone's asking you to be a specialist family violence counsellor. That's not expected of you. It's absolutely not. I think this is where workplaces get worried or where schools get worried. They think, you know, well, what if we don't know all the services to refer to and we don't know how to assess risk? You know, the trusted friend or family member in your life isn't asking you to do that. But they do want support. They want to feel believed. They want to feel validated. It's been six years since Thomas left his partner and he's often met with suspicion or disbelieving looks when he discloses that he was abused. And at the same time, he wasn't able to get the support that he needed from police or from support services. Thomas believes that this is in large part because he's a tall, confident gay man. It's the hardest thing to say as a person, as a human, that this happened to you constantly over and over again. 
and then to say it and to be sort of looked up and down as if this wouldn't happen to someone like you because of your gender or your size or how confident you seem today. It just makes you stop. You go, I better not ever say this again because they'll think I'm lying. Years after leaving, the abuse still affects him. The criticizing and transferring of issues has stayed with me for so long. I still get anxious that I don't build a dishwasher correctly or that I haven't put on a load of washing correctly. Next week is our final episode of Season 2 of There's No Place Like Home. And we'll talk about hope. Domestic and family violence is a national crisis. So we know that to tackle it, to drive down those prevalence rates, we will need every single Australian to play a role. See you then. There's No Place Like Home is a Future Women podcast in collaboration with our proud partner, Commonwealth Bank, who are committed to helping end financial abuse through ComBank Next Chapter. No matter who you bank with, if you're worried about your finances because of domestic and family violence, you can contact ComBank's Next Chapter team. Contact them on 1800 222 387 within Australia or visit combank.com.au slash nextchapter. If you need help or advice, please check the show notes for phone numbers for confidential support. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review. It'll help these important stories to reach more people's ears. For more information about There's No Place Like Home or to join the movement, please head to futurewomen.com. This episode was produced by Jamila Rizvi, Emily Brooks, Mel Fulton, Sally Spicer, Hannah Fahur and Tarang Chavla. Editing by Bad Producer Productions, artwork by Patty Andrews.